all, and welcome back to All Swell, a production of the American Shoreline Podcast Network and the Coastal Society. I'm your host for today, Eva. This week, you're hearing from the Duke Coastal Society chapter, along with two very special guests. Today, we'll be discussing the issue of ocean plastic pollution. Plastic debris has been found across ocean ecosystems, including in the deepest portion of the ocean that we have explored, the Mariana Trench. Actors from across sectors are becoming increasingly aware of this issue and are working on innovative ways to address it. One particularly challenging aspect of plastic pollution is the presence of microplastics in our waterways. Today, we'll focus on both the larger plastics issue and the narrower, more complex issue of microplastic pollution. But first, a brief word from our sponsors. The American Shoreline Podcast Network and CoastalNewsToday.com are brought to you by LJA Engineering. With 28 offices along the Gulf Coast, the folks at LJA Engineering are at the top of the craft in the areas of coastal restoration, coastal infrastructure, rivers and channels, numerical modeling, disaster recovery, and design and construction oversight. Be sure to subscribe to the Coastal News Today Daily Blast newsletter at CoastalNewsToday.com for daily updates on the events and news that shape the coastal discussion. Want to support the discussion and promote your company? We have sponsorship packages available now. Email me to learn more at chloe at coastalnewstoday.com. That's C-H-L-O-E at coastalnewstoday.com. Hope to hear from you and enjoy the show. Our two guests today both work with plastic pollution in different ways. I'm very excited to introduce Adam Frederick of Maryland Sea Grant and Demi Fox of the National Oceanic and Atmospheric Administration to our listeners. Adam, Demi, welcome and thank you so much for joining us today. It's great to see you both. Hi Eva, thanks for having me today. Thanks so much, Eva. Looking forward to it. Please tell our listeners a bit about yourselves. What path led you to your current position and what is your current position? Adam, let's start with you. Thanks, Eva. Uh, My current position is I'm the assistant director for education at Maryland Sea Grant, and I've been with them for 26 years now. And prior to that, I was a public school teacher in Frederick County Public Schools in Maryland. And what led me to this path is I had a background in environmental biology uh, and ecology and was looking for some other um, types of work in teacher professional development and environmental sciences. And I was finishing up my master's degree, uh, which included aquaculture and immunology. And I was just fortunate enough to uh, land a job at the Institute of Marine and Environmental Technology with funding from Maryland Sea Grant in 1995. So I think that's the short summary of it. What about you, Demi? I studied coastal environmental management at Duke's Nicholas School of the Environment. And after graduation, I went on to work at a sea turtle hospital in South Florida. I constantly saw all the debris that the turtles were ingesting. And in 2018, I moved to Massachusetts to begin working as a Northeast Regional Coordinator for NOAA's Marine Debris Program. So in that role, I help coordinate marine debris prevention, removal, and research projects in Maine, New Hampshire, Massachusetts, Rhode Island, and Connecticut. Very cool. So Demi, what exactly is microplastic? And what is the difference between microplastic pollution and other forms of plastic pollution? Microplastics are generally defined as those less than five millimeters in size. Microplastics in the ocean can be from one of two sources. They're either primary microplastics, manufactured to be microplastics like pellets that are used in plastic production, 
or secondary microplastics, which come from larger plastic items that break up in the sun and waves over time to become microplastics. Similarly, our clothing, furniture, and fishing nets may produce microfibers, another type of secondary microplastics. These fibers are made of synthetic materials such as polyester or nylon. And through general wear and washing and drying, the tiny fibers break off and they shed from the larger items. Microplastics tend to accumulate and swirl in the ocean gyres, what we've come to know today as our garbage patches. Thanks, Demi. It seems like microplastics are kind of everywhere these days. Adam, you mentioned your background in ecology. Could you discuss some of the ecological impacts of microplastics in the ocean and how these impacts compare to those of other kinds of plastic pollution? Sure. I think most people are more aware of the impacts of larger plastic pollution and plastic debris, such as plastic bags and baggies and balloons and things like that that get into our waterways and into the ocean and becomes problems for mammals, uh, sea turtles, and other types of uh, marine organisms. So they enter the food chain by way of ingestion. They're much larger. It's easy for people to see them. Uh, when they litter the beach and things like that. But uh, I think that the microplastic component is a bit more challenging for people to imagine. Um, you know, and those impacts are a challenge also in the research community. So there are a number of different studies that are happening uh, in different parts of the globe, some in Sweden and Germany and Japan as ones that I'm familiar with that are looking at how microplastics are affecting different kinds of invertebrates, uh, some related to worms and polychaete worms in the marine environment. And a lot of these studies are uh, fairly new, maybe three or four years old, and it's very difficult to tell what the current impacts are, uh, whether they're ingesting them uh, and having issues with them, whether they're using them as part of their structures that they build and burrows that they build and how they're passed along in the marine food chain is another question. So ultimately this leads all the way up the food chain to ourselves and a lot of the studies that are happening now related to what the human impact might be are ongoing, but uh, at present don't really have many conclusive um, results to them. Yeah, it's interesting that you mentioned uh, microplastic incorporation into the lifestyle of polychaetes, because I remember you and I actually touched on that a bit when we were working together. Uh, speaking of which, uh, could you kind of explain more how your current work touches on the plastic pollution problem, and more specifically, how your work ties into efforts to really raise awareness of and resolve this issue? Um, that is clearly a global issue and really needs to be addressed as soon as possible. Sure, thanks Eva. Um, we've been working on a biodiversity project in harbors in different places uh, in the United States and in Europe for approximately 22 years. And the biodiversity work was to get a better uh, overall picture of the organisms, mainly sessile and vertebrates that are colonizing substrate in these different harbors and what those profiles might look like since there was very poor information uh, about that type of work. For example, in the Baltimore Inner Harbor, where we have our site next to the institute I work at, there was very little to no information about the types of organisms in the water in the harbor, other than 
people seeing crabs and fish and things like that that are much more visible. So it's helped us gain a lot of good background information about the general biodiversity. The microplastic component we've been involved with the last five years, uh, we've been trying to find out if microplastics are present in these communities of organisms that are settling onto uh, settlement plates and disks that we put out in the water. And we've developed a protocol that uh, you were very helpful with in which we could isolate and observe microplastic by sampling some of the biodiversity communities on the disk. So it's a uh, physical separation using heavy seawater, and we're able to observe microplastics, you know, components that are found among that community of um, diverse organisms. What that actually means is another question, but I think it raises the awareness of people by getting them to see it for themselves. So we've been successfully working with teachers and students on this in uh, Maryland, and now we're expanding into Washington, D.C., uh, to another harbor there, the National Harbor and the Potomac River. And when you put uh, a sample of organisms like this in front of students, and then they can actually isolate microplastic from it, I think it has a much greater impact uh, on them and may actually get to what we really need is some change in attitude, but ultimately a change in behavior. Right, right. I agree. I think it's really important to get those kinds of hands-on experiences. And that was what I really enjoyed in our work together. Uh, Demi, what about you? How does your position with NOAA tie into this plastic pollution work? Yeah, we help connect partners across different regions of the U.S. who are working on marine debris issues. And this can range from collaborating with local restaurants to eliminate single-use plastic products from their services to cleaning up derelict lobster pots out at sea. One of the main ways we do this is through regional marine debris action plans. These are typically five-year plans that serve as a record of the different projects that each agency and organization is working on so that we can communicate challenges and lessons learned with each other. Sharing the most effective ways to reach diverse audiences is one of the most important things we can do to prevent plastic pollution. Yeah, I love that um, both of you have pretty different approaches to resolving this issue. It's, it's why I wanted to have you both on today because um, you know, you're working at very different scales and in different sectors, but ultimately working toward, toward solving the same problem. Um, so Adam, because you are more on the education side, do you feel that the plastic pollution problem um, is primarily due to a lack of awareness and education amongst the public, or is the larger problem here uh, convincing industries to switch to alternative packaging, noting that, you know, the, uh, the lack of education and awareness is still an issue, but perhaps one is more, um, more important than the other? Yes, that's a very good question. So, I think in general, the public has a fairly decent level of awareness regarding, uh, let's just say, pollution in general, plastic pollution, um, but it doesn't <clears throat> quite equate with sometimes attitude and then uh, moving into action, uh, which is the hardest thing for people to do. So it requires some type of behavior change. So we have known for a long time about the value of not littering, uh, recycling now for you know quite some time, 
and you still see problems with that. So it's really about changing the behavior of each individual person and the way in which that they treat their own resources from what they purchase and what they use and what they dispose of. And when you look at the collaborative work that we've done in different places in Europe, for example, uh, the people there don't necessarily know uh, a lot more about plastic pollution or pollution in general than the people do in the United States. But in a lot of these small communities, their ability to act uh, or their willingness to act is a bit higher. So that's what we really need to get to is how do we convince people to take on the information that they have and use the actions that will get us to a point where we're helping to limit the amount of plastic that is getting from our roadways and uh, runoff into waterways. And then the second part you asked about was looking at industries. And industries are really doing some things that will change things significantly, probably in the next uh, five to 10 years. Some of these large industries, including fast food industries, uh, not to name any, but um, and other industries that are switching away from plastic packaging, for example, or eliminating certain types of material. Uh, and you see a lot of those things happening. It will still require people to act though. So while you need a really good awareness campaign and you need people to have a certain kind of attitude, it's really the practices of doing the things day in and day out that will eventually help eliminate these problems. Definitely. Uh, I know I have tried to limit my plastic use using things like shampoo bars and metal straws, uh, but I've still got a long way to go. And I think a lot of us feel that way. Um, in terms of you know educating the public and students and using awareness campaigns, uh, you mentioned you know the hands-on classroom learning that we did together. What are some other really effective ways to teach the public and students about issues such as microplastics that you found to be to be your favorite or to really hit home the most? Yeah, I think. Um... Beside the in-classroom work and the teacher professional development that we've done, which is a really important core piece of the work that we do, it's the field experiences that students may have uh, related to either the work that we do or other nonprofits are doing and getting students out into the field. So it's, it's very difficult to imagine these plastic problems without actually getting into the field and seeing some of these issues for yourself. Um, and whether it's, you know, beach cleanup efforts that happen or people going into different parts of their watershed to see how they can help clean things up or taking field experiences to look at uh, biodiversity in general and what the impacts are of all the different, you know, man-made resources around them. Um, these are really, really important steps to take. And even just a few field experiences for students or people in the general public can really do a lot to change attitudes and actions. I think that's a really important point to make. Um, I certainly wish in my early science education, I'd had more field experience and less, you know, textbooks and testing experience. Um, and I know being a master's student now uh, and being at the Marine Lab, 
the kind of field experience we get here is so crucial for our education and for us to feel fulfilled as people trying to work in resource management and trying to address these issues. Um, so Demi, I'd like to take a look at NOAA because I know the Marine Debris Program covers much more than just microplastics. So I'm curious uh, what the program is most concerned with at the moment. Yeah, great question. So unfortunately, there's always a need for removal efforts. There's tons of debris out there. Removal is just something that is our reality right now and we have to deal with. So while there's always going to be a need for removal, we try to keep prevention measures at the center of everything that we do. And this includes making sure that outreach and education are included even when we're conducting removals so that the same type of gear doesn't reaccumulate in the same place next year. We have recently made updates to our grant programs to be able to reach more diverse audiences and include new voices in marine debris prevention, removal, and research. So many of the prevention and removal efforts we fund include things like derelict fishing gear, abandoned and derelict vessels, and consumer debris products. And our research priorities include risk assessment in commercial seafood, the fate and transport of marine debris, habitat impacts, pathways for marine debris introduction into the coastal zone from things like surface runoff, stormwater discharge, and wind-driven transport, and also monitoring to learn more about the types and quantities of marine debris that are in specific locations. That seems like a lot on your plate <laughs> and Noah's plate. I'm sure the work uh, never ends. Um, sticking with the federal government for a minute, do you know if the current U.S. administration is uh, doing anything legislative-wise or um, otherwise to really try to reduce plastic consumption and reduce the amount of plastic that will eventually reach our oceans and our coasts. Yes, the Save Our Seas 2.0 Act was signed into law on December 18th of 2020, and we call it the SOS. The SOS touches on many agencies and establishes NOAA, EPA, and the State Department as the leads on most of these efforts. So for areas within NOAA's jurisdiction, some significant components of the SOS Act include authorizing the marine debris program to work on marine debris around the world, establishing a marine debris foundation, establishing a genius prize for Save Our Seas innovation, and requiring several new reports and studies on different aspects of marine debris, including the sources and impacts of derelict fishing gear, microfiber pollution, and the U.S.'s contribution to global plastic pollution. That's great to hear that there's uh, some real effort being made here on the federal level. I know uh, we also uh, have heard about many states implementing things like plastic bag bans and other local ordinances to limit plastic waste. We've all seen the video um, of the turtle with the straw in its nose. And after that, we saw um, you know, a lot of local areas uh, kind of trying to reduce plastic straw consumption, either by limiting those in restaurants individually or by passing bans. Uh, Demi, beyond education awareness, what stages of the plastic life cycle from manufacturing to disposal do you think can be targeted, targeted most effectively in order to reduce ocean waste? They're all connected, right? When we have a new alternative material, we need to be sure that we have methods to dispose of it accessible to everyone. It's tough to pick out one piece of the life cycle and say, okay, we fixed the problem. 
everything's a chain reaction. So I think it's going to take everyone working together to most effectively reduce ocean waste. Right. And do you do you think that'll be a pretty significant task having uh, all these different sectors and levels working together on this? I do for sure. There's lots of barriers that we all face along the way, but I think we are starting to come to some more solutions and some more behavior change, which is ultimately the end goal. Definitely. I hope so. Um, So zooming way back out from state level, federal level to actually international efforts, um, Adam, you mentioned collaboration with Europe in some of your work. Could you speak a little bit more about that? Sure. Uh, We've had this uh, biodiversity monitoring program, as I mentioned, in um, countries in Europe. And we started in 1997 with a partnership between Sweden and Norway and the U.S. uh, funded by the Wallenberg Foundation in Sweden. And this gave us the opportunity to study our harbors a little bit more closely and for research scientists to collaborate on some other research projects that were uh, important to the funding. So the network has grown uh, since then to a number of different countries and Spain and Germany included in our last round of funding. And what's really interesting is to see how the teachers and students in different countries take and run with these uh, types of projects. So we had them working on the biodiversity component and the microplastics component, isolating and observing them. And we had some really great results. Some uh, students and teachers chose to do documentaries of their work and film their work as part of the project. And other students uh, did more independent research uh, as part of the school day and part of uh, after-school programs related to microplastics. And it was a very successful um, overall collaboration that we had. And we're hoping to continue that next year. But the real value here is connecting with other cultures and seeing how they interpret the information that we're all trying to get out about plastics and microplastic awareness and then how that fits into their uh, specific culture and their, quote, day-to-day routine. And what we tend to see more often is that our partners in our, you know, European partners tend to have all things built into their day-to-day routine already that limit litter and pollution and plastics in their waterways. So uh, some of those things take a much longer time to adopt since they would be newer or there would be changes in uh, behavior, not so much lifestyle, not so much your day-to-day lifestyle, but just the way in which you treat your resources that you are purchasing and then disposing of. So I think there are some really good inroads there, but it'll, it'll take much more collaborative efforts and working with community-based organizations. Uh, let's say around the the Baltimore area or Washington area to see more um, fruitful results from that. Right. And I think it's, it's really important to have these collaborations um, on multiple scales, including international when it comes to pretty much any ocean issue, because they're so connected, whether it's plastics or fisheries, you know, um, I think, and bringing the culture part into that as well is also a really interesting discussion. And I could give you an example that was um, that really fascinated me when I was in Germany. Uh, we were walking from one venue to another, and we had different 
things with us. So, you know, a, a glass bottle, plastic container, these different things. And there were literally places along the way to put your, an appropriate place to put your plastic container or even your glass bottle, which you could literally just put down next to uh, one of the, quote, you know, litter bins uh, or recycling bins that they have there. And people would come along and, and pick them up and take them for recycling. So it would, be, it would be like you going out with a bunch of aluminum cans here in the U.S. and putting them out at the curb. And you know somebody's going to come and pick them up and take them to a recycling center, even though you don't know who they are or you haven't paid for some service. But if you waited 10 minutes, that bag would be gone or 10 minutes, that bottle would be gone. So there are some really interesting dynamics in uh, other places that we um, are, you know, they're distant for us at the moment in terms of our behavior change. No, I think I think that's that's a really interesting uh, story. And I'd love to see something like that here where I think even in the States, we you know, we do recycle. But uh, there's a lot of um, there's a lot of uncertainties some people have about if things are properly recycled here and stuff, I think there's less trust in the system compared to somewhere like that, where you have a great example of full trust, right? Um, so you mentioned community-based organizations, uh, and you do a lot of work on the ground. Um, I'm wondering if you've heard of the Great Nurdle Hunt. Yes. Yeah. I've heard of that. Um, so it's a citizen science program based in the UK. Um, it encourages beachgoers to document microplastic pollution in order to raise awareness of the issue and help uh, provide data. Do you know of any similar programs in the US that we can share with listeners? Or if not, could you elaborate on the Great Nurdle Hunt so maybe someone out there gets the idea to start a program here? <laughs> Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh, I think the um, I think it's very similar to one that is also established in Scotland, where they're looking at uh, you know beach sand, blue mussels, <clears throat> and water samples in terms of sharing the information in a uh, community science program or citizen science program. Um, in the United States, I'm not aware of one in which we could share information like that, but. We're trying to build some uh, fundamental pieces of data in our project in, in a way in which we could share that through uh, a school's type of network. And the interesting part about that is that at the same time, many times in other countries, there are parallel efforts that are very similar. And in, in Europe, they're developing a network and have developed a, a network, I should say, called the uh, Blue Schools Network or Blue Schools Project. And I'm working with some partners there to do um, and develop some different types of training. And so maybe we can get a more international look at uh, how we might share information like that. But um, other than the beach cleanups, which are done by community-based organizations and others, uh, I don't know if other than amount of material that is collected, which we've all seen before, you know, in pounds or tons of uh, material that's collected. I don't know one of which is really focusing down into the microplastic level, but I think there are some good projects on the horizon that could lead to that. Yeah, that would be great. Um, you know, as we've mentioned on this podcast before, the Coastal Society, the Duke chapter here does coastal cleanups and, um, 
we really focus on larger plastics because we are reporting pounds and we're trying to pick up all the all the debris that's really noticeable. We don't we don't go through and do things like sifting through sand and stuff, but but um, maybe we should think about incorporating that, or maybe we can, uh, as part of our chapter efforts, uh, try to find some organizations that do that and work with them. Because um, if there's one thing you know we're learning today, it's that plastic pollution on all levels is a really big concern. Um, so final question for you two. Uh, Demi, what are some simple ways for listeners to reduce their contribution to microplastic pollution? Small steps. I really think if you can think of one single-use item that you use every day and try replacing it with something reusable, if that works for you, try another one. I think it's really easy to become overwhelmed with trying to eliminate plastics or single-use items from your life completely. I think you said earlier, Eva, we have a long way to go, and we do. But if we can focus on one tiny step, it would make such a huge difference. And I know there's plenty of things I'm still focusing on trying to make those switches in my everyday life. And when I make one successfully, I try another one until we get to a point where we're living much more sustainably every day. Yeah, and I think... I think that advice extends to a lot of uh, sustainable things beyond just plastic use. I think we tend to think of individual efforts toward things like reducing climate change or reducing plastic consumption as, as almost burdensome sometimes because they require lifestyle overhauls, right? But, but they don't. It is, I mean, you're completely right. It is small steps. It is little changes that fit into your life that can go a long way when done by a lot of people. Adam, do you have any additional thoughts on reducing individual plastic consumption? Yeah, I think the advice that Demi gave is, is really, really good. And it does come down to the idea that to change uh, behavior, things have to be very uh, direct for people. So if it's really overburning and broad, like you were saying, Eva, it becomes kind of overwhelming to make a choice. But if it's very, very direct about uh, one single item or another type of item being more advantageous, and there is a direct reason about you know why that is a better option, I think people are more apt to adopt that type of um, you know idea and put that into some type of behavior. And I think there are other uh, really good signs also from, for example, from the project that we're working in uh, in National Harbor in D.C. is that. We've got a really good partnership with the marina and the group that runs the marina there and the waterkeeper organization. And I think between the two, there's a lot of good education and outreach uh, work that can be done to reach a number of different groups of people about their local waterway. And they're invested in their local waterway since they are involved in the recreation side of it. So we should look toward other groups that may be a little bit more non-traditional uh, so that we connect better with uh, the science information that we currently have. Absolutely. And, you know, again, I think that's a point that extends beyond plastic uh, pollution and reduction consumption as well, really creating these collaborative networks amongst different sectors that maybe in the past don't see eye to eye, but that we now really need to all bring together in order to tackle these really large issues. 
Well, thank you both so much for being part of our show today. It was great catching up with both of you, and I'm sure our listeners learned a lot. Yeah, thanks, Eva. This was a really, really fun session to do. Thanks so much for having us, Eva. Yeah, this was awesome. Thank you both so much again. Um, And thank you to the American Shoreline Podcast Network and the Coastal Society for your support in creating this podcast. And remember, where there's a will, there's a wave.